Thank you, Andrew, and, and the rest of you guys for leading us in song this morning about the greatness of our God, the greatness of his kingdom, the greatness of the salvation that he has provided for us. Was that six verses of our great savior? Five? I think we could have done 10. I don't think we can wear out the, the joy of celebrating the greatness of Christ and the greatness of what Christ has done for us. And I'm pretty sure Andrew knew our text for this morning. It's in seeing the greatness of Christ, the glory of Christ, that it puts us properly in our place, doesn't it? Luke chapter 9, our text this morning will be Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. I invite you to turn there. And the title for this morning's message is Against Vain Glory. Against Vain Glory. And that's a word we don't use very often, vain glory. I don't know when was the last time that came up in a conversation for you. But the word vainglory is a good word. It means an inflated view of self. It's an excessive pride, especially in our own achievements, in our own abilities. And this vainglory is not just wrong. It's not just foolish when we compare ourselves to how great Christ is. Vainglory is spiritually deadly. As we read through both Old Testament and New, we discover that humility is essential. Humility specifically towards God. Humility is, in fact, required in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Humility is step one for a Christian. The fundamental choice we all make to follow Christ, as we look back in verse 23 of Luke 9, is to deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow Jesus. Apart from the dethronement of self, there is no salvation. Repentance which is our response to the gospel, is the condemnation of self and sin. Faith, which is how we, we receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Faith is the transferal of our trust from ourself to something outside of ourselves, to Jesus and his work. So the one who will not humble himself before God is one who cannot repent, one who cannot believe. The one who is not humble before Christ is still lost, still dead in his sins. Humility is step one for being a Christian. But humility is more than step one for the Christian life. It's also step two and step three and step five and step 2,479. Humility is something we continue to grow in. It's a lifelong project. So as you come to Christ, as you deny yourself and you take up your cross, the self is dethroned. Yes, but pride is really hard to kill. Self still strives for supremacy. And to follow Jesus means we have to embrace this mindset that says less of me and more of Christ. It's about his glory, not mine. As John the Baptist famously said, he must increase, I must decrease. This is a key lesson that all followers of Jesus have to learn and it's one that Jesus had to address with the 12 on more than one occasion. Despite seeing the glory of Christ, despite traveling with him, seeing his miracles, hearing his teaching, even seeing the glory of the transfiguration, the disciples were often caught up in trying to advance their own glory, a foolish, vain glory. And Jesus' words to them, as we'll see in our text this morning, serve to convict serve to correct, serve to instruct, not just the 12, but us as well. Let's look at God's word together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 46. Luke writes that an argument arose among them 
as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Lord, as we approach your word now, I pray that you would grant us a proper humility, that we would be taught by you, that our hearts would be corrected by you, that we would be instructed by your wisdom and submissive to your authority. Lord, bring about a fruit of righteousness in us through the power of your spirit and the preaching of your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Central point this morning is very simple. True greatness is displayed in selfless humility. True greatness is displayed in selfless humility. In God's economy, in God's judgment, which is the one that really matters, humility is precious while pride is repugnant. Service to others is honorable, while boasting in ourselves and in advancing our own glory, that is repulsive to God. As James chapter 4 tells us, he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And that's a principle you're probably aware of, but we see it fleshed out in this text, and we see two descriptions here of the kind of humility that God honors, two ways in which this humility needs to be manifested. And the first is this. In verses 46 through 48, we find that humility rejects the temptations of personal pride, an individual pride. Humility rejects the temptations of personal pride. If we zoom out just a little bit and remind ourselves of what's going on here in Luke chapter 9, remember that Jesus has just told the disciples about the suffering that he's going to endure. He's just told them about the sacrifice that he's going to make. We see that in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, this great glorious character, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But the disciples didn't understand, verse 45, clearly, because their conversation right after this revealed that their greatest concern in that moment is not about his future, it's about their future. Ironically, while Jesus is teaching them about his own humiliation, They're arguing over their own exaltation. Who is the greatest? An argument arose among them, verse 46, as to which of them was the greatest. Who was the one among them that is worthy of the most respect? Who was the one among them that that deserved the most recognition? Who among them really should be the most appreciated? Who should have the place of prominence in the kingdom of God? That's what they're arguing about. They're concerned with figuring out where they fall in the pecking order. But Jesus steps in in verse 47 because this is something that needs to be corrected. He recognizes that there's a problem with their thinking. There's faulty reasoning. Look at verse 47. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Jesus sees into their hearts. He sees what's going on, and he recognizes a problem with their thinking, this faulty reasoning. What was wrong with their reasoning? Well, the way that they measured greatness was simply wrong. They were using the wrong measuring stick. Perhaps they were comparing their stats 
from their ministry tour. If we go back to the beginning of chapter nine, we see that Jesus sent them out and he gave them power to heal and to cast out demons. Maybe they were bragging about, well, when we went to this town, you know, there were six blind people that, that we saw healed. Someone else goes, well, in the town that we went to, we saw six blind people and two deaf people. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe that's the, the nature of the conversation. Maybe Peter and James and John could one-up them all and say, well, you guys performed all those miracles, but we got to be with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He always invites us for those special occasions that you guys don't get to be part of. So that must mean that we are greater than you. Who knows? Jesus knows, however, that they're using the wrong measuring stick. Their reasoning is faulty. Jesus knows the reasoning of their hearts. And so he begins to explain to them that the least is actually the greatest. And they have things backwards. You see, the message of Christ is often full of surprising reversals. We've seen that, haven't we? The one who loses his life will save it. The last will be first. This often sounds to our ears like a paradox. It sounds backwards. It feels like things are upside down. But if the things of God seem upside down to us, it's because it's our perspective that's faulty. It's our reasoning that needs to change. When my kids were younger, they loved to climb around on the couch and tumble all over their living room. They still do that. They just break stuff now because they're way bigger. But when your little kids are playing on the couch and they, they lean backwards off the couch and they're upside down with their head on the floor, they may say something like, Dad, why are you walking on the ceiling? Right? They think it's hilarious. I'm not walking on the ceiling. Their perspective is upside down. We are often just like small children who need to have our perspective corrected. We need our values to be reoriented. We need our priorities to be adjusted. We need a mindset shift. Our understanding of what it means to be great needs to change. We absorb our values from the world. We have our own wisdom, our own opinions about what makes someone great. It comes from our own flesh. Jesus says, your reasoning is faulty. But the problem goes deeper than just their reasoning. If we look in verse 47, the problem really is the condition of their heart. Jesus knows the reasoning of their hearts. See, ultimately, the way that we measure greatness is not just an intellectual issue. It's not just a problem with our thinking. It's, it's, it goes deeper than that. It's a moral issue. You see, the conflict that these men were experiencing and the argument that they were engaged in revealed their pride. It revealed the condition of their heart. It revealed a desire in them for personal glory. You see, it's pride in the heart that causes us to rank ourselves over other people in our own minds. Pride is this internal judgment statement that we make about who we think is the best, who we think is the smartest, who we think matters the most, who we think has accomplished the most, who we think is the most needed, the most noble, the most sacrificial. Get this, even who we think is the most humble. It's this internal judgment that we make. And pride tends to, to make this effort to rank ourselves over other people, to compare ourselves with them, and then to compete with them. That's what's in the heart of the 12. That's why they're arguing was this pride that existed in their hearts. And this sort of pride that seeks to rank yourself over others, this kind of pride that competes and compares, it leads to self-righteousness. It leads to a critical spirit, a tendency towards fault-finding with others. It leads to an attitude of dismissiveness towards other people, a lack of concern for them, 
a lack of gratitude and care, this sort of pride in the heart that seeks to rank yourselves over others when you're always comparing and competing with others, it leads to a heightened awareness of your own gifts, a heightened awareness of your own wisdom, your own opinions, your own needs, your own burdens, your own contributions, your own sacrifices. That's a proud heart that fixates on the self and compares and competes with others. That's a proud heart. Romans 12, 3, Paul urges us, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Our view of ourself needs to be in accordance with God's truth, not colored by our own sense of pride. But as we see with these disciples, and as we all know from experience, that sort of pride in the heart, that sort of reasoning, that sort of attitude, it doesn't stay contained, does it? It doesn't just reside in the heart. It often overflows, and it leads to conflict. We see that with these disciples. They're arguing. There's a conflict among them. They're disputing with one another. Now, not all conflict that we experience is rooted in pride. It's not always rooted in pride, but pride will always cause conflict. And the bad fruit of, of this kind of conflict that's rooted in pride is that it impacts relationships. It damages relationships, even destroys relationships. The man who is proud, the woman who is proud, will be identified by a trail of broken relationships behind them. Proud people don't have good relationships. They don't have long-term relationships. They're unable to enjoy unity. They're unable to enjoy fellowship with other people because that pride in the heart eventually overflows and produces conflict. Pride doesn't just create conflict, but pride even seeps into other conflicts and, and it makes them personal. It turns a disagreement about something into a problem with someone. That's what's happening with these disciples. Pride leads to comparison and competition and makes it me versus you, you compared to me, which means that proud people can't actually engage in necessary conflict that needs to happen. They can't engage in necessary conflict without it becoming deeply personal. Everything becomes personal because pride is not just concerned with truth. It's not just concerned with what is right. Pride is concerned with being right and with winning. Pride has to be first. And the heart of pride, this selfish ambition that we see here in the heart of the disciples, it causes you to view other people either as resources that can help you accomplish what you want to do or as obstacles and threats that need to be eliminated because they're getting in your way. So the disciples are arguing. They're experiencing conflict. But Jesus knows their reasoning and he knows their heart. So what does he do? Well, first, Jesus acts in verse 47. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Before Jesus speaks the truth for them, he, he enacts the truth. This is one of Jesus' illustrations, like a, a live-action parable. He takes a child and he puts this child by his side. You might ask the question, why? Is it because kids are cute? Yes, they are, but that's not why. Is it because he just liked children? Well, he did like children, that's not why. He was illustrating something. He was illustrating something. And I, I thought about maybe illustrating, if that's okay. Uh, hey, Prim, 
Do you mind coming up here for a second? I knew Prim's brave enough to do this. I didn't warn Prim ahead of time. Prim is not my daughter, she's Steven's daughter. So she's a little younger than some of my kids. So Prim, can I ask you a couple questions? We can stand right up here together. I'm gonna ask you a question, Prim. How much money have you made in your life? Have you made a lot of money? Do you have a job? You do have a job. Do you get paid for your job? <laughs> you get paid for your job? Have you ever paid taxes? I don't think you have. Okay, so she's never paid taxes. Um, let me see. Prim, do you have a college degree? Have you written any books? You've never written any books? Uh, let me see. Um, hmm. Have you ever um, run for office and had people vote for you? No? Um, have you won any awards uh, for your academic excellence? No? So you don't have any money, you don't have a job, you've never accomplished anything. Do your parents take care of you? I bet they do. Yeah, good job. So Prim, right here, is an example of someone who has, to this point, made very little contribution to society. Her parents have to care for her. She doesn't yet help pull very much weight in her home, but she will. She will, right? You can go sit down. Thank you, Prim. So what Jesus is doing in pulling a child into his midst is he's taking someone that in Jewish society would not have been valued. They valued men at the highest. They valued women after that. They valued slaves, third, and then children were at the bottom of the totem pole. There's a high mortality rate for children. Children obviously couldn't contribute. They're just needy. And so until they could get to a point where they made a valuable contribution to society, people treated children as, as a very, very little worth. So Jesus takes a child and puts this child at his side, even though many rabbis in Jesus' day refused to teach children. They would refuse to teach anyone under the age of 12. They thought it was a waste of their time. That was the prevailing attitude towards children. In fact, the disciples apparently felt the same way. They felt similarly that children are not worth our time. In Luke chapter 18, verse 15, it says, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Their society did not value children and that, that value system had seeped into the minds and the hearts of the disciples. You know, our society doesn't value children either. Our society kills them in the womb, treats them as an inconvenience, sees them as a nuisance, an annoyance, a cost burden. But Jesus values children. Jesus loves them. Jesus ministers to them. What makes Prim valuable is not how much she's accomplished in her life. What makes Prim valuable to God is not her contributions to the church or to society or to her family. It's because she's made in his image and because he loves her. That's why Jesus values children. And so by setting this child right next to himself, Jesus is showing that what makes you valuable is not all those things. It's not your gifts. It's not your knowledge. It's not any of that. It's something different entirely. Jesus doesn't measure things the way that they do. So he takes this child and sets him next to him. And then after acting, Jesus speaks in verse 48. He says to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Jesus makes a powerful point here that the way they treat such people, the people that have nothing to offer them, the people that rank at the lowest of the totem pole, the way they treat such people really reflects their attitude towards him. 
All service towards those that are supposedly beneath you really reflects your heart towards Jesus who is above you. We see this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Listen, when you demonstrate love towards someone who has nothing to offer you, someone who can do nothing for you, someone who probably has done nothing for you, that love is actually evidencing evidencing your love for Christ. It demonstrates a heart that's committed to serve Christ, committed to serve his kingdom. It shows a heart that is humble and therefore open to receiving grace. Look what Jesus says. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You see, the proud who rank themselves over others, the proud who compare themselves, who compete with others, have actually set themselves against Jesus Christ. The proud cannot receive him. And Jesus says, if you can't receive me, then you are still separated from God. He's the God who resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think for a moment about the implications for this in the church. Can we really rank ourselves over those who are made in God's image? Can we really rank ourselves over those who have been loved by Christ, people that Jesus laid his life down to to redeem? Can we rank ourselves over those in whom dwells the very spirit of God? Can we rank ourselves over someone who's been clothed with the righteousness of Christ? We can, but only if we use the wrong measuring stick. Only if we value worldly standards of of worth, worldly standards of greatness, worldly standards of significance, only if we reject Jesus' way of looking at things will we rank ourselves over our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then Jesus makes a powerful statement. He redefines true greatness for them and for us. At the end of verse 48, the one who is least among you all is the one who is great. He's challenging their paradigm, their faulty reasoning. He says, look, what God looks upon as great is not what the world is impressed by. It's not your accomplishments. It's not your gifts. It's not your level of knowledge. It's servanthood. It's selfless sacrifice and glad humility. That is what God delights in. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. You see, true greatness is displayed in selfless humility, a humility that rejects the temptations of personal pride, temptations to rank yourselves over others, to compare with them, to compete with them. There's a second way that we see this humility described in our passage, and that's in verses 49 through 50. Humility, second of all, rejects the temptations of group pride, collective pride. 
Here's what happens. When a bunch of people that are individually proud get all together, you know what sometimes happens? We can all get proud together. We can start reinforcing each other's pride. And that's what we see happening in verses 49 through 50. But humility rejects the temptations of group pride. Situation here is that there's another person that's been working miracles in Jesus' name. John pipes up in light of what Jesus is saying. I don't know if he's looking for a pat on the back or if he's actually confessing now because he wonders if they've done the right thing. But in any case, John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. The natural question, this, this other person is out there doing ministry of sorts, but Jesus has called the 12. Jesus had commissioned the 12. He'd sent them throughout the region and given them the power of his spirit to do miracles. So the disciples might be wondering, is this guy genuine? Is this other guy approved? Um, could this cause any problems? It's strange that someone would claim the name and claim the authority of Christ and not be following with them. So their concern at first glance does seem legitimate. Maybe they don't want people to be hijacking the name of Jesus, but John's words at the very end actually betrays the real motives behind their concern. He says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow you? No. He does not follow with us. Ah, there it is. That is the issue. Their concern was not with doctrinal purity because that warrants conflict. Doctrinal error warrants conflict. Their concern was not about truth. It was not about the good of others. It's not that this man is out harming other people. No, others were being helped. He was ministering to people. Their main concern was not the honor of Christ because these works were being done in Jesus' name for his glory. They're not even concerned that he's not following Jesus. Their concern is that he wasn't part of their group. That was their problem. It was about them and, and their experience of being called by Christ, their experience of being appointed as the 12, as apostles to go out and represent Jesus, that had created an attitude of exclusivity. So Jesus responds, as he always does, with a wisdom that cuts right to the heart of their selfishness, cuts right to the heart of their pettiness, their jealousy and pride. Look how Jesus answers in verse 50. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Sorry, guys, I'm not sure if you're looking for a pat on the back, but this is not what I want you to do, Jesus says. Jesus concludes in verse 50, the one who is not against you is for you. Because guys, you're being like the second grader on the rec basketball team who steals the ball from his own teammate. Like he's on your side. He's not against you. He's not against you. He's on your team. If their concern was the glory of Christ, if their concern was the fame of his name, if their concern was ministry to people, they would not object to what this man was doing. Jesus doesn't even weigh in on whether the man is legitimate or not or, or where he got this power or if Jesus approves or if Jesus knows about it already, we don't even know. But the point that Jesus tries to make is that he does not want his followers having this attitude of group pride that is exclusive and therefore opposes people that are actually serving God. There's an Old Testament precedent for this story that's very similar in Numbers chapter 11, God instructs Moses to gather 70 of the elders of Israel, and God promised that he would take some of the spirit that was on Moses, some of his spirit, 
And he would put it on these 70 elders so that they could help lead God's people. And the text says that when this happened, the men began to prophesy. It was evidence to all that they truly did possess the spirit of God, just like Moses. But there was two men, we're told, who did not go up to the tabernacle. There was two men who stayed behind in the camp. Someone had to hold the fort down while everybody else went off to the meeting. They remained in the camp, but nonetheless, these two elders that stayed back behind, they experienced the same phenomenon that the other elders did. In Numbers eleven twenty-seven, it says that a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses asks Joshua, his disciple, a penetrating question, one that Jesus could have easily asked, are you jealous for my sake? Or if you sort of read between the lines, are you just jealous? You see, Moses did not stop Eldad and Medad. Jesus said, you don't need to go stop this man who's serving in my name. There should not be a spirit of possessiveness or, or territorialism in the heart of God's servants. J.C. Ryle in the late 19th century wrote, better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. What matters is that the name of Jesus is being made known. Now, I want to clarify at this point. I want to clarify because there are a lot of people who claim to follow Jesus, people who claim to even minister in his name. We hear about some of these people in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, there will be many in that day who say, Lord, Lord, did not we do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So this passage is not meant, our passage in Luke chapter 9 is not meant to undermine the importance of discernment. This does not mean that anybody who shouts out Jesus is automatically on our team. This passage does not minimize the importance of truth. People may not be with us. That's fine. But their relationship to Jesus does matter, and it is an all-or-nothing thing. You're either for Jesus or against Jesus. Matthew 12.30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When it comes to someone's re relationship to Christ, the response to Christ, it's all or nothing. You're either with him or against him. So the key to us knowing, to come back to Luke chapter 9, verse 50, knowing if they are with us, knowing if they are for us, the key is their relationship to Jesus. Do they minister in his name, meaning under his authority? Are they proclaiming the truth about Christ? Are they advancing his mission? If so, we are wrong to have an elitist or an exclusive view. We're wrong to resent them for accomplishing what they're doing. We should rejoice rather than resist. By the way, this is why once a month we spend time in our worship service here praying for other churches in Lawrence, Kansas. It's not because we agree with those churches on everything. We don't. We have different convictions, even strong ones. It's not because we think there are no problems in those other churches. They have problems. We have problems too. The reason we can pray for these other churches is, is because they believe that Jesus is the Christ and they proclaim that salvation comes only through faith in his name. And so they're not against us. 
And one of the reasons we spend time in our worship service praying is because we want to push against that attitude here that we are God's only church in Lawrence, that we are his only servants, that we're the only place where the spirit of God is at work taking the word of God, ministering to the people of God. The key to knowing if someone is for us is found in their relationship to Jesus Christ. But those who claim to represent Jesus those who claim to be on our team, but they in fact preach a false gospel, those who claim the name of Jesus, but they actually go about dishonoring him, those who claim to minister to people, but they're actually using people and causing harm, causing confusion, leading them away from Christ, they are not for us because they are against Christ. And so we cannot pretend to be on the same team. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 says, Eve, Paul writes, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. This is strong language of condemnation. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The book of Jude, similarly, Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, there's that spirit of unity. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not promoting unity for unity's sake. He's not saying you just need to sing kumbaya with anything and anyone that calls themselves a Christian or a church. No. He is promoting a Christ-centered unity for the sake of his name, for the sake of his mission, for the sake of his message. So for us as a church, there ought to be a sense of solidarity with others who serve Christ. But listen, that solidarity we share, that fellowship we have with other believers is never to be at the expense of the truth. Our unity is not at the expense of the truth. Our unity must be in the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. So naive approval of of anything that might call itself Christian, that's a danger. A lack of discernment leads to much damage in the church and brings shame to the name of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, there's another danger, a different danger, the one Jesus is speaking about, and that is the danger of group pride, the danger of priding ourselves in our accomplishments, in our convictions, as those who are part of a certain theological bent, as those with strong convictions about preaching and worship and ministry. We have a lot of beliefs here that are strong and and deep convictions, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing, to know the truth, to love the truth, to be passionate about the truth, to stand for truth. That is a good thing. The problem is not doctrine. The problem's not theology. The problem's not strong convictions. The problem is when individual pride becomes collective pride, which produces an attitude of elitism and exclusivity that leads to competition and jealousy and envy of others. So rather than follow the disciples' bad example, we as a church ought to be marked by a deep longing for Jesus to be glorified. We sang about it this morning. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done so that everyone knows your name. It's about that. It's not about us. 
So when other ministries that are faithful to Christ, even if they're not with us, if they are bearing fruit and experiencing success, we ought to be able to rejoice for them and rejoice with them. True greatness is displayed in selfless humility. It's not about me, and it's not about us. It's about Christ. We must reject the temptations of personal pride to compete and compare. We also have to reject the temptations of group pride to censure others, because not because they're not following Christ, but because they're not with us. The disciples at this point in the story are still proud men who need to have that pride rooted out. And this won't be the last time that Jesus addresses it. We'll see it again. But before we look too hard on these guys, we need to look in the mirror because just as they absorbed assumptions from their culture, we do the same. And just like they have to deal with indwelling sin, the plague of personal pride, we too need to be trained out of the world's way of thinking and trained to press further into the battle against self. So as we close this morning, I want to give you just three quick responses. How can you respond to this text today? I want to give you a pra- some practical responses to these truths. The first is very simple. It's repent of known sin. Repent of known sin. If you feel a sense of conviction this morning about the way in your own heart, in your own mind, maybe you've never even verbalized it, but the way you evaluate other people and rank yourself over them, then Christ calls you to repent of your sin today. Humble yourself before the Lord. If you see in yourself evidence of personal ambition and selfishness, a critical spirit, self-righteousness, a focus on your needs and your burdens or your gifts and your contributions, then you need to repent of that. You need to turn away from it. You need to confess it as sin. Isaiah 57 verse 15, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. You need to draw near to God today and the ones he welcomes are the ones who are lowly, the ones who are contrite, the ones who are broken over their sin, realistic about where they stand compared to Christ and his glory. God delights in humility, so repent of your sin today. Confess it and seek God's grace and forgiveness. Secondly, practically, I want to encourage you this morning to embrace the uncomfortable work of God. Embrace his humbling hand. See, if there's evidence of pride in your life, yes, we need to confess, we need to turn, but humility is a virtue that needs to be cultivated. Pride is a sin to be confessed and cast aside, but humility is a virtue that has to be cultivated. It's something that has to grow in us. And God is the one who stimulates and causes that growth. So we need to welcome that work, even when it's uncomfortable. It's really ironic to me that this argument the disciples are having about who's the greatest, it comes right on the heels of their failure. They failed to help that boy that was suffering because of demonic affliction. They couldn't do it. The father said, I I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Jesus rebuked them for their faithlessness. This comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they didn't understand. You would think that after their failure of faith and after their, their complete failure to understand what Jesus is teaching, that they would have grown in humility just a little bit but they didn't receive those experiences as an opportunity to grow in humility. 
You see, God loves humility, and he loves you, Christian, which means that he wants to cultivate humility in you, and he's going to give you some opportunities. I think there's two ways in which God cultivates humility in us. It happens through teaching. As we learn the truth, as we learn to love the truth, as we get a clearer vision of who Christ is, it recalibrates how we measure greatness, and it helps us see ourselves rightly. So humility, if it's to be cultivated, if you're going to welcome God's work of humbling you, it requires that you seek the truth and know the truth and love the truth. As you open God's word, it helps you see how small you are and how great God is. As we read through scripture, as we sit under the teaching of scripture, we recognize I have certain thoughts and attitudes that are warped and distorted and scripture aligns me with reality. So the pursuit of truth should lead to much humility. So God cultivates humility in us through teaching. And sometimes that teaching is uncomfortable. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to look in the mirror and see that's who I am. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to to see God and his glory in scripture. It causes us to tremble. It puts the fear of God in us, as it should. But Sometimes even more uncomfortable than the teaching God provides for us are the trials God provides for us. If you're going to welcome God's uncomfortable work, if you're going to receive his humbling hand in your life, it means that we embrace in faith the trials that he sends our way because every one of those trials is an opportunity to grow in humility. Aging is an opportunity to grow in humility. Receiving criticism, warranted or not, is an opportunity to grow in humility. Experiencing failure is an opportunity to grow in humility. For the Christian, these are not merely afflictions to be escaped as we face different kinds of trials. They are opportunities to be received from God. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? Joy? Why would I welcome trials? Why would I rejoice when trials come? James tells us. Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If we lack humility, and we're not yet complete, we're not yet whole, we're not yet mature in our faith, God is going to send trials into our lives that are meant to purify and perfect our faith. So as we seek to respond to this text, we see the value and the importance of humility. What that means for us is when God gives us opportunities to grow in humility, namely trials, we need to welcome that. Too often we kick and we scream and we say, God, do you really love me? Because this hurts right now. Make it stop. Rather than embracing and receiving and rejoicing in the painful circumstances that God gives in order to teach us to be humble. In every moment, we need to recognize that God's purpose for us is our sanctification. That God desires in you and in me an ever-growing humility towards him and towards others. And this process of growth is something we have to embrace. We have to embrace. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson firsthand in 2 Corinthians 12.7. He says that to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Two times Paul says, I'm suffering to keep me from becoming proud. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know what Paul did not boast in? He did not boast in the revelations. He did not boast in the visions that God had given him. He did not boast in his righteousness, his ministry success, his pedigree. He boasted in his weakness. He embraced humility. He embraced humility. Friends, if we are going to respond in obedience to the principle of this text, that true greatness is actually displayed in selfless humility, that means we have some growing to do. And you're probably experiencing something from God's hand right now that's meant to help you become more humble. So rather than push it away, rather than grumble, rather than question God's love, embrace it, receive it as an opportunity to grow in this way. And then finally, a third practical response. If we're going to grow in humility, not only do we need to seek the truth and know the truth, not only do we need to embrace God's sometimes uncomfortable work, but we especially, at all times, need to look to Jesus. Simply look to Christ. When we look to Jesus, we see, we see incredible glory and at the same time, radical humility. And that's the model. That's the model. Like Paul says in Philippians, let this mind, this attitude, this way of thinking be in you. Follow the example of Jesus, who though he was seated at the right hand of the Father, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held onto, but instead he emptied himself. He humbled himself. That's the model. The humility of Christ is a model for us. And not only in looking to Jesus do we find a model for humility, but we also find comfort when we feel conviction for our pride. I'm very thankful as I read this passage that Jesus calls people to follow him who aren't yet perfectly humble. That Jesus doesn't fire any of the disciples after this discussion. No, he teaches them. He instructs them. He bears with them. He is patient with them. He is merciful towards them. And you know what? He is patient and merciful and gracious with us as well. He looks upon you, Christian, and he sees the pride in your heart. He sees the selfish ambition, and he does not condemn you. Rather, he pursues you in love to teach you, to purify you even through difficulty, to sanctify you. Christ has atoned for your sins on the cross so as you feel the weight of sin, you feel the burden of, wow, I am not who I need to be yet. I am a proud man. I am a proud woman. I am a proud child. Jesus died for proud people. So we look to Christ not only as the model, not only as the example, but also as the one who loves and forgives proud people. And just as he patiently worked with the 12 to make them into who he wanted them to be, he is patiently working with us as well. You bow your heads with me as we pray. As we mentioned at the very beginning, humility is step one for being a Christian. If you've never humbled yourself to repent of sin and to trust in Christ, if you're relying on yourself today to somehow please God and jump through all the hoops, if you're unwilling to repent because you don't care about God's law, you don't care about what he says is wrong, you're not afraid of his judgment. If you have a hard heart, listen, what Christ calls you to today is humility. Step one of humility.
to repent of sin and to trust in Christ. If you don't know him today, I, I urge you to look to Christ and to see the glorious Jesus who humbly laid down his life to die for you. Cry out to him in faith and humble yourself before him. Ask him to save you. For those of you who are believers, for Christians, let's pray together that God would grow us in this. Lord, we thank you for your word and we recognize our need for growth in this area of humility. It's been convicting for me as I look in the mirror myself this week and I know that I'm not there yet. And I think I'm probably in good company that most of us are not there yet. So Lord, help us to consider the truth of your word. I pray that it would humble us. Help us to embrace your humbling work in our life as you bring trials and difficulties, as we experience failure and pain and we deal with our own sins, we deal with the sins of others against us. I pray that you would humble us, that you would burn away the pride that, that remains in us. Help us to put self in the back seat, to deny ourselves and to follow you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the perfect model of this humility who has also provided forgiveness for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you have called us, chosen us, sanctified us by your blood, atoned for our sins, and that you now patiently work with us to make us more and more who you want us to be. I pray that we as individual Christians would grow in humility and that we as a church would have a collective humility, that it would be a sweet-smelling aroma to you, that you would look upon us as a small little church in Lawrence, Kansas, that you would be pleased by the humility that you see. We pray all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.